tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Sit up now. I am not playing with you tonight. Sit up. Paramedics are supposed to be there to save us in emergencies. Because I am seriously not in the mood for this dumb You can walk, come on. But have they become part of the problem? I'm not messing with getting vital. When calling dispatch turns deadly. They didn't do any assessment. They didn't check his breathing. Everything they did was totally wrong. Then, too many black people sitting in jail for marijuana crimes. I was three years old when my dad was deported for cannabis. He missed out my entire life. But now, in many places, it's legal. We have a lot of gummies, vapes. Should there be reefer reparations? When we legalized this new industry, we had to make sure that we created the pathway for people who suffered direct harm from our prohibition laws. And? It was very, very tough because there's no cure for autism. Examining autism. I was taking him to the doctor and they're like, no, there's nothing here. Why black children aren't getting the care they need. It's not easy raising a kid with autism. We love our kids and we're here to support them. Plus, the degradation of the community follows the degradation of the waterway. One woman's fight to save the environment. You need to improve the river in order to uplift the community. All that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Mara Escampo. We begin tonight with an update to a story that we've been following. You can see two of the EMTs arriving on the scene. A Tennessee board suspended the EMT licenses for failing to render critical care to Tyree Nichols. Some are calling the actions of those EMTs egregious. In the moments after Tyree Nichols' beating in Memphis, EMTs can be seen doing lots of things. They prop him up chat with officers, shine a flashlight on the 29-year-old. But what they don't do is offer any medical care to a dying man, visibly injured, writhing in pain, barely conscious. Their actions so terrible that Memphis Fire Department EMTs Robert Long and Jamichael Sandridge were fired and had their licenses suspended for failing to give aid to Nichols after the brutal beating. This just one of several recent cases of shocking medical neglect by first responders. Sit up now. I am not playing with you tonight. Sit up. As 35-year-old Earl Moore Jr. struggled through alcohol withdrawal in his Illinois home in December, uh, uh. paramedic Peggy Finley screamed at him to get up and walk. Because I am seriously not in the mood for this dumb shit. You can walk, come on. Moore couldn't even stand up, laying on the ground, moaning in pain. But Finley never even took his vital signs. The patient is slightly combative and confused. I'm not messing with getting vitals because I'm not going to poke the bear. No, use your legs. After being forced to walk and collapsing several times, Moore finally made it outside where he was strapped to a gurney face down by Finley and another responding EMT. Body cam video shows them pulling the restraint as tight as possible across Moore's back. Less than an hour later, he was pronounced dead at the hospital. Cause of death, asphyxiation or suffocation due to his positioning. 
You never play somebody in the prone position. The prone position is on your stomach. Retired paramedic and firefighter Michael Estrada watched the Earl Moore Jr. video in horror. They didn't do any assessment. They didn't check his level of consciousness. They didn't check his airway. They didn't check his breathing. Everything they did was was totally wrong. In the United States, racism is an independent risk factor for death. Full stop. Patient safety expert and equity champion, Dr. Ronald Wyatt, who has over 26 years in this field, says the system is set up to fail black and brown people. If you look at other evidence of how long does it take uh, EMS, EMT, ambulance crew, uh, 911 to respond based on zip code, uh, there is a difference. And it's no surprise, he says, that less than 6% of paramedics are black. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. So if you if you have less than 6% uh, first responders, and if you ha- you look at then what are the outcomes of the, of the people stratified by race, ethnicity, and language, what's their clinical outcome? I can predict to you what you will find. You will find misdiagnosis, delays in diagnosis, no diagnosis, uh, limited or no care, and people end up with either temp- severe temporary harm, permanent harm, or death. When the first responders did arrive, they saw me as a black male that was uncoordinated, mumbling, could not communicate with them, and they immediately started treating me um, as a black male that was either intoxicated or um, having an overdose on drugs. When a sickle cell stroke left Kevin Wake unable to speak in 1999, first responders just assumed he was high, which led him to getting the wrong medical treatment in the hospital. Only after I was able to flag a nurse down, and it happened to be a nurse of color, um, I was able to write with my non-dominant hand, my left hand, the three words, and that was sickle cell stroke. And um, I truly believe, because she actually took me seriously, that saved my life. And while many first responders have faced lawsuits for their screw-ups, some cases go far beyond negligence. Probably the most well-known case, Elijah McClain. Hey, stop right there. Stop. 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 I have a right to stop you because you're being suspicious. On August 24, 2019, 23-year-old massage therapist Elijah McClain was walking home when police approached him, tackled him. I am an introvert. Please respect the boundaries that I am speaking. Used a now-banned chokehold to keep him still, and then paramedics injected him with 500 milligrams of the sedative ketamine, approximately 50% more than the right dose for his size, a lethal amount leading to cardiac arrest. What were you initially told when your son was injured? I was told that someone called um, 911 because there was a suspicious individual banging on uh, vehicles in the parking lot. She looks Yeah. And what did you make of that? You described your son as a very peaceful person. I I knew they were lying, um, but I didn't have any proof. Chill out. You've already been told several times to stop. I can't fix myself. Once they finally released the body cam footage, uh, I was I was invited to the police department to view 
a small percentage of the video um, with a few other individuals. And it was apparent to me just from, you know, the, the video that they allowed me to see, the, the little amount of it that they allowed me to see that they jumped my son. Yes. There was no way for Elijah to grab for anyone's gun because there was two heavy men on him. Yeah, breathe directly because... Literally, all it took was a conversation that they chose not to have with my son before putting their hands on him like they themselves were gang members. We often focus on police misconduct. Do you think that more attention needs to be paid on first responders and medical responders in situations like this? Yes, I do, because they work together. They work hand in hand. They're like, they all go to the same clubs, as far as I'm concerned. They're all a part of the same system that looks at people of color like animals instead of human beings. Once this, this medicine kicks in, we're going to uncuff him, put him on the bed. Okay. Jeremy Cooper and Peter Chikuniak, the Aurora paramedics who injected McLean with the fatal dose of ketamine, were indicted by a grand jury and charged with manslaughter, criminally negligent homicide, and other counts. Their trial began this week. What would you like to say to the officers and the paramedics who were involved in your son's death? Wow, if they had been better people, my son would still be alive today. If they had been better at their jobs and competent at their jobs, my son would be alive today. And they're not gonna get away with the evil, racist hatred that they did to my son the night they murdered him. I don't do any fighting. I don't even kill flies. Are you hopeful that you will have justice? Do you have faith that you will get justice? Not really. Um, there, there really is no justice for me because I can't get my son back. Um, Elijah's gone. Um, the only thing I can have from this time is... Um... Excuse me one moment. You take all the time you need. The only thing I can do is to make sure that there's some type of new law or new protocol that makes it very hard for them to continue to do the things that they did. Um, their protocols are inhumane. Their training is inhumane. They're not taught, they're not trained to correspond with the suspects they're just trained to shoot and kill they're just trained to apprehend and debilitate you know so in my hopes for justice and accountability is that other people don't in, in um encounter the same horror my son did all right we'll be right back Welcome back. As more states are making it legal to sell marijuana, criminal justice advocates are questioning what now happens to those formerly incarcerated for weed offenses. Are they due reparations for their time? Well, New York has a program that attempts to address this question. We have a different variety of inventory, different THC levels. 
we have a lot of um, gummies, vapes. Ecstasy James is busy making a sale in Queens, New York, and at the same time, making weed history. Southern Life was amazing, and everybody was just so happy, and I, it, it shocked me. I, I couldn't even believe it. We're the first dispensary to open in Queens, New York. It's an honor, not just an honor, but it's history, you know? As, as to be colored woman, to be a woman, you know, it's, it's big, it's really big, so it's to inspire other women that, you know, anything is possible. A lot of families suffered just from cannabis, and we were, we were one of the lucky families to get that opportunity. The 26-year-old dispensary owner is now among hundreds of New Yorkers currently getting dispensary licenses that are fast-tracked by the New York State Social Equity Cannabis Investment Fund. The target, those hit with past marijuana charges and their families, making these legal wrongs right. We call it is a private investment fund that raise capital um, from private investors to invest in card applicants. What they've done for us is invaluable. I mean, we, we would, really couldn't have done it as fast um, without that help. This invaluable opportunity allowed Ecstasy to sell recreational cannabis legally to New York City politicians at her grand opening. The first customer for Ecstasy James, owner of Good Grades, was Queensboro President Donovan Richards. Woo! But this monumental moment came with a serious personal cost. I was three years old when my dad was deported for cannabis, for selling. He missed out my entire life, and he missed out on my siblings' life, and it still impacted with my mom, too, to be alone by herself, to raise children by herself. It impacted us still to this day. That impact is still felt 23 years later for family cousin and Ecstasy's business partner, Michael James. He's not gone in the sense of he, he didn't die, um, but many people understand what losing a family member to the system um, feels like. And to lose someone to the system and then lose them out of the country, out of your life, that you've known the whole time, it, it's devastating. And then for him to not be able to, to visit and, and at least come back, uh, it's, it's, it's a devastating feeling. Still forced to live separated from his wife and kids, the family patriarch was among those prosecuted for weed possession in New York before recreational marijuana became legalized in 2021. The city's long history of aggressive stop and frisk laws put many people of color and especially young black men behind bars for simple pot arrests. And while black citizens statistically have been arrested for weed possession at nearly four times the rate of whites, majority black owned dispensaries represent less than 2% of all dispensary owners across the country. Right now the city's pushing to make cannabis some more inclusive business. Diversity is hard to find in the cannabis space. Federal regulations still make it extremely difficult for mom and pop business owners to thrive. Required fees are exorbitant and demands for large amounts of upfront capital disqualifies many struggling people of color. So here in New York State, all the entire legalization conversation um, was centered upon equity and how do we help restore the quality of life for New Yorkers that had been harmed by the overprohibition of cannabis. Tremaine Wright is chairperson of New York State's Cannabis Control Board. She's seen nearly half a million people's criminal records wiped clean. Over 400,000 New Yorkers have had 
their cannabis-related convictions overturned, expunged. We had to figure out how do we bring a safe, reliable way to market for people to purchase. We had to make sure that we, we created the pathway for people who suffered direct harm from our prohibition laws. While New York may have reversed its position on criminalizing cannabis, don't call it refer reparations. So I tend not to use the term reparations because I think in, New in the United States, that is really talking about how do we restore people who've participated in 400 years of unpaid labor in this country. What I think New York is doing is a reconciliation. It is helping to restore people's rights. And we're also trying to make sure that the harms that were committed by over-policing in our communities related to uh, pro this prohibition are never repeated. Not everyone locked up for marijuana will be allowed to open up shop, but you might be surprised who are some strong candidates. If they have um, federal felony convictions for drug trade, so those are very high level, we're not able to give those persons um, a license. So we're really looking at character in our licensing process. So what do we ask for people who have convictions related to character? Those tend to be fraud, embezzlement, um, and other, and actually a lot of white collar crimes. So many people will be able to get this. Women in this industry are few and far between. Black women in this industry are few and far between. And the truth of the matter is, is that while most, most of the people that were convicted and incarcerated are men, the people that are on the other side of the phone call are the women, right? Up and coming dispensary owner, Naomi Guerrero, is determined to lead the charge and change the female narrative in the growing market. The way that I show up is really important and a lot of the work that we do when a lot of the men are sort of taken um, is invisible labor, right? And so I think that it's really important to sort of assert that and take up that space. The more di divergent and like different voices that you have that are contributing to the cannabis community, the more equitable of a place it, it's going to be. Their journey from legacy to legal is something Naomi has dreamed about since she was a teen. She watched her older brother Hector get in and out of trouble. We grew up in the 90s. Um, we, my brother was um, a teenager at the height of stop and frisk. It was constant harassment, constant surveillance. And I, um, I remember my brother telling me at one point, we just started going to the roofs um, so that we could be left alone. It was just um, constant, constant paranoia, constant surveillance. Naomi's boyfriend and business partner, Akili Parnell, who works in the cannabis world in multiple states, is impressed with what he's seeing on the East Coast. I also have a dispensary in Chicago. I've seen how it's played out there. Um, and usually we're the last ones to market when we come behind. But New York is prioritizing black and brown folks, people with convictions, people that come from communities that have been devastated by the war on drugs. And we're getting first mover advantage in cannabis. That's something that we've never seen in any other states. That's enormous. And in addition, they're addressing the biggest challenge that we face, which is access to capital. So by bringing that up front, that's huge. 
Naomi and Akili are hopeful, even as New York City Mayor Eric Adams reveals there are still over 1,700 black market cannabis dealers on his streets, making it even harder for legitimate medical and recreational shops to prosper. But Michael James has witnessed those illegally selling weed actually celebrating this new 420 era. People from the black market coming in here and saying, yes, you know, I'm from that market, so it's great to see it here. This is their wildest dreams. It's given everybody hope, an opportunity, and um, a sense of community, um, legitimate community here. There's more Revolt Black News Weekly coming up after the break. You know, kids on the spectrum, you know, they hard to deal with a lot of Fathers run away. A lot of parents run away from the responsibility because it's not easy raising a kid on the spectrum and with autism. And so, um, you know, I, I just, you know, I told the world, listen, guys, we're all normal. We all have situations in this world. Uh, we love our kids and we're here to support them. And I just want to encourage any dads, any parents out there, they're having a tough time uh, with their kids. Man, to stick in there and just know that they're our biggest blessing. Welcome back. That was Grammy-nominated hip-hop artist Fat Joe opening up about autism, which he is all too familiar with, having raised his now 33-year-old son, Joey. Autism is much more common among black kids compared to white children. The stakes are high, and new research shows black children with intellectual disabilities often get misdiagnosed first, which further delays much-needed care. Put the red square on the word show. Put the red square on the word show. Good job. For black parents of autistic kids, the world can be a very scary place. Last month in New York City, there was a vicious attack on an autistic teen. Early this year, a 12-year-old boy with autism in Virginia was handcuffed and concussed during a tennis program run by police officers. His mother saying they misunderstood his actions as confrontational. Last year in Saratoga County, New York, a 14-year-old with autism was tackled by officers in Target while waiting for his siblings to purchase items in the checkout line. And in 2012, an autistic 15-year-old in Illinois was fatally shot by police after his parents called for help following an argument. There's a certain feeling alone, aloneness that you know that, that you feel like you're isolated, you know, when you get this diagnosis because you, you, there's no nobody really is talking about it. Memphis rapper Nakia Kinfolk Shine is shining a light on the difficulties Black children with autism experience. He and his wife struggled to find resources when his son, Jameson, was diagnosed in 2012 at two years old. It was very, very tough because this is not something you, there's, there's a cure for. There's no cure for autism. Nakia and his wife have six kids, but saw early on that Jameson wasn't making eye contact and reaching his speaking milestones on the typical timeline for infants and toddlers. It took two years for a doctor to finally diagnose Jameson, a common scenario for many black parents. When you have autism, there's nobody coming with pamphlets or someone saying, hey, you know, this is what's going on with your child. It's going to be this and this and this. Because of the fact that 
you know, it's the spectrum is so wide. According to the CDC, for the first time, autism is being diagnosed more frequently in black and Hispanic children than in white kids in the U.S. Now, about 3% of black, Hispanic, and Asian or Pacific Islander children have been diagnosed with autism, compared with about 2% of white kids. Early diagnosis and intervention can greatly improve outcomes for children with autism, regardless of their race or ethnicity. To address these disparities, autism advocates like Camille Proctor, founder of The Color of Autism, say it is essential to improve access to health care and increase awareness of autism in Black communities. So in the beginning, I wanted to make sure that Black families were gaining access to d- diagnostics and services. So we were real heavy on early intervention. If you think there's something wrong, do something about it. And we tell people not to wait. So the organization itself, we support parents by offering support services such as support groups. Um, we have a really great support group for dads. After Camille's son was diagnosed in 2008 at the age of two, she found herself scrambling to find services, and the pickings were slim to none. Camille later started her organization and became a change agent dedicated to the autism cause, offering free resources to her community. However, there are several possible reasons for this disparity. One factor may be a lack of access to health care, including regular checkups and screenings, which can make it more difficult to detect early signs of autism. I was still early on in my journey, and I was bumping my head a lot because it was like I was going through my own thing, but I was so passionate about people, um, Black people, understanding that this is something that exists in our community. Another possible explanation is that there may be differences in how autism presents in black children compared to white children. Some studies suggest that black children with autism may exhibit different patterns of behavior or have different symptoms than their white peers, which could make it more difficult for clinicians to recognize the signs of autism. One of the things I was concerned about is that at one year he wasn't walking, at 13 months he wasn't walking, at 14 months he wasn't walking. 15 months, he said, okay, I'll, I'll go somewhere. I'll get up and walk. So that was a problem. He, and then when he did walk, he walked on his tiptoes. He walked on his tiptoes for a very long time. And he would also flap his hands. And he would line up everything, just line up his toys, spinning wheels, um, getting pushing a chair to a light switch so that he could turn it on and off and on and off. And so I, I, I knew that this behavior that I was seeing was not normal. I also recognized the fact that he had a speech delay where he decided, I mean, I don't want to say he decided, but he wasn't saying um, much of anything that was audible. Um, and then I started to notice that he had sensitivity to sound, that he always had his hands over his ears, which gave me the assumption that he may have had an ear infection. So I was taking him to the ear doctor and they're like, no, there's nothing here, there's nothing. And so those were the signs that I experienced. All of this is why advocates like Nakia and Camille offer services that can include providing culturally responsive care, offering training and resources for healthcare providers, and increasing outreach and education efforts to raise awareness about autism and its symptoms. We're spreading awareness and acceptance out here, and we're and we're not afraid. We, we just, you know, it, it's it's time for it. It just it's a season for it for people to get out for some people of color 
to get out here and be able to like let people know what our experience is with this so that when you see a child that's out in the grocery store and checking out and you see a child that's, that may be having a behavioral issue at the moment, it ain't cause that parent ain't taking care of their business or, or oh, look at this child, look at what he, this disrespect. No, the child can have autism, you know what I mean? And, and, and you gotta, you know, just don't be so quick to judge and, and try to accept what's going on. Don't go anywhere. There's more Revolt Black News Weekly on the other side of the break. What's poppin', guys? It's JG here from Blowing Smoke. If you're a fan of fun, insightful, and breakthrough conversations, then be sure to check out and subscribe to the Blowing Smoke podcast, a show that covers life experiences and firsthand testimonies from some of the biggest names in your favorite industries. And all that brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip hop, powered by creators. Before we leave, there's one more thing we want you to see. This is Stand Up For, presented by State Farm. My name is Jacqueline Eccles. I am board president, South River Watershed Alliance. I'm on my bi-weekly sampling tour of the uh, South River in South DeKalb County and Rockdale County. I test this site once every two weeks. You can see it's very picturesque. It's nice and clean now because we had a big cleanup. My goal today is to collect a water sample from the river. I'm actually only testing for one pollutant and that's E. coli. E. coli is important because it's the bacteria that makes people sick if you ingest it. Make sure there are no leaks and we're done. All right, next stop. How important is the South River to the communities around it and why? Well, traditionally with predominantly people of color communities, the degradation of the community follows the degradation of the waterway. In order to uplift uh, the community, you need to improve the environment. You need to improve the river. It's important to me as, as the president for the people in the community, which are people of color, black people, let's just call it that, that they care for the environment, that they protect it, that they take a part in that. You know, that's critical. And more and more people are doing that. Where does this love and appreciation of nature and rivers come from? I think that started as a kid. I think it almost has to sometimes. I grew up in Tuskegee, Alabama. Outside, favorite pastime even to this day is fishing. And I can go all day and fish and don't care if I don't catch a thing. <laughs> you know, so it's just the, 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 the act of the, the water, you know, the solitude, and I can go by myself and sit all day and don't care. So I think it just comes from growing up. And when I moved to Atlanta 30 some odd years ago, the first fight I got into, joined up with a bunch of, of environmentalists, little dramatically improve water quality, both in the Chattahoochee and the South River. We're not 
successful, but we did get nine miles of it. So from our efforts, that was in 1999, that dramatically improved the community, that dramatically improved uh, the river. So I recognize the importance of beginning the improvement of a community, particularly environmental justice communities, by working on the environment first, because there is this whole idea that resonates across this country of using the environment as an economic engine. It's one of the best. The trash, you can see there the plastic bottle. That is the main, it's gonna end up in the Atlantic because the water from the South River flows to the Atlantic. And these plastic bottles become part of the problem that we now are seeing in the ocean. So when you talk about the degradation of the water, what kinds of improvements does the river need? How bad is it? It's, it's been pretty bad <laughs> um, for 50 or 60 years. As a matter of fact, this, the South River was Atlanta, this back in the mid-1800s, was Atlanta's first combined sewer. I mean, they bricked up the river and channeled all of the sewage from what was then becoming urbanized Atlanta into the South River. So a lot of the problems that we've dealt with in the past 20 or 30 years are, I, I think, a direct result uh, of that. Well, how does that manifest? When you say, you know, what we're seeing now is a result of what, what was happening the 20, 30 years prior, how does that show up? It shows up in water quality. For instance, Atlanta is under a federal Clean Water Act consent decree. Consent decree is nothing but a, an agreement between the city of Atlanta and EPA to stop the pollution of a particular waterway. The whole idea was that via this consent decree, Atlanta was supposed to eliminate pollution, contamination from sewage that was getting into the Chattahoochee River and the South River. And it takes a lot of money. It's a very expensive deal to, to improve your wastewater infrastructure. Sounds like repairing that sewage infrastructure is really key to addressing this problem. Oh, I mean, repairing sewer infrastructure is the key to uh, most water quality issues in this country. Now, in 2021, the South River was named the number four most endangered river yep. in the country. What does that mean, that it's endangered? The whole endangered part came into play for the South River specifically because there is no deadline to fix the sewer system in South DeKalb County. There is a deadline to fix the sewer system in predominantly white North DeKalb County. DeKalb County failed to require that uh, the sewer system in South DeKalb County be fixed so that it would stop polluting the South River. So, and we're talking about a majority black area. Uh, yes, we're talking about a majority black. Do you think it's a coincidence that the requirement that was applied to the white communities was not applied to the black areas? At the time, I was really shocked that it never happened before. In 50 years of the Clean Water Act, this has never happened before anywhere in this country. And without a deadline, it's yeah. basically useless. It's, it's useless. And so that was the source of the endangered issue because it does violate the Clean Water Act. 
that has not been corrected. So our work in terms of water quality testing, in terms of advocacy, just around that issue alone, continues. What do we want? We want! What do we want? Now! Sadly, the health of urban rivers across America is in peril, most notably in Flint, Michigan. The deaths of nine adults and the lead poisoning of over 14,000 children is attributed to the disastrous decision in 2014 by then-Michigan Governor Rick Snyder and his health officials to switch the water supply from the Great Lakes to the severely polluted Flint River to save money. Do you see a connection between what's happening here and what we see happening in other cities like Flint, Michigan, where predominantly black communities are struggling against these environmental issues? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's different. It's precipitated by different sources of pollution. You know, a lot of in urban areas, it's sewage. In, in terms of the river, you have an opportunity because you do have an asset there. It may not have been utilized correctly, it may not have been maximized, but if you have a river in your community, you are lucky <laughs> because we don't have that many, that many rivers in this country. And for instance, and most of them are not urban origin rivers. Folks usually think of bad river water when it's got color to it, eh, it hasn't rained, so you can see. Down this far, just how clear it is. <laughs> I would be really shocked <laughs> if there was an issue with E. coli here just by virtue of the clearness of the, of the sample. A lot of the issues in terms of the environment uh, have just followed Atlanta and South DeKalb County for a really long time. One is Cop City uh, or the Atlanta Police Training Facility. This is, though, the latest in a series of clashes with police. The training center was approved by Republican and Democrat lawmakers at the state level, and it's been the epicenter of escalating confrontation. Oh, How do you expect that Cop City will impact the river? It will impact the river, and it will impact the community. And I said, when you do one, you do both. We're talking a huge piece of green space that will soon, unless... We, we have our way, it will, you know, we'll, we will win this fight. That creates a heat island effect, pollution. All of the uh, environmental detractors that folks are trying to get away from in urban areas. And it's happening there because of who lives there. You know, Cop City, the police training facility, whichever one you prefer, would not be possible anywhere else in this city. We're talking, you know, 171 acres. The South River Forest, which helps support and protect the river, and suddenly the mayor decided that it was going to be donated to the Atlanta Police Foundation, and hence Cop City starts to materialize. As the environment goes, so goes the community, and that community there, uh, which is predominantly black, We'll never recover. We made progress, but this fight is the biggest one of all because if they lose that one, communities just can't recover. This is clearly something that's very important to you. I mean, you've devoted your life to this work. Why is this so important to you? I truly do believe that 
if you improve the environment, you can improve neighborhoods. There is so many possibilities when you work with the environment to improve the community, you know, sustainable development, a whole different approach where people can participate in the revival of their community, focusing on the environment. How do you motivate and inspire people to do that? <laughs> That's, it's, you know, I won't say it's easy, it's not, but actually I knew that if the community was going to change, people had to want to change it. They have to be a part uh, of the change process. Black people just have not gotten involved in kayaking and canoeing. You know, the river paddles started out to be, you know, a big part of it. Come discover the wonders hidden in Atlanta's backyard. But hey, had no idea it would work, but we uh, bought some kayaks and rented some canoes and started what I call Beyond the Bridge, because most folks in that area, they didn't even know the name of the, the river. I mean, they just see water. They'd only seen it from a bridge. Go across, oh, you know, it's a river there. It takes somebody to lead an effort, but you also need a lot of followers to go with you on that journey, uh, wherever it is. And my goal is to get more and more people on the river. And so that's kind of how it got started. And people, from the time we started, they have loved it. And so, you know, we, we continue to fight. What would you like to see in the next few years when it comes to the river? I would like to see interest being taken in the community to realize the importance of the river. People need access to it. Green space as a source of economic development is the best because there's so much you can do from that point. What I'm talking about are sustainable and community-friendly businesses and development where it blends in with the community and not overwhelm it. Rivers are resilient. Water is resilient. If you stop polluting it or if there's no source of pollution, there's no, no reason for it not to be clean. It cleans itself. For those living here in Atlanta and anywhere in the U.S. that want to support the incredible work of Dr. Eccles and the team at the South River Watershed Alliance, head to their website at southriverga.org and click on the Take Action tab for more information. All right, we'll be right back. Well, that wraps it up for us. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, X, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone.
Right, what's going on? It's your girl Lala Shepard. Boss Brit the most lit. What's up? It's your girl DJ Excel, and you are tuned into the Progress Report podcast. Okay, and if you're a fan of hip hop news and culture, make sure y'all like and subscribe to our podcast, The Progress Report. Brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip hop, powered by creators. <laughs>